Welcome to This Week in California Education. I'm John Fensterwald. And I'm Zadie Stavely, sitting in for Louis Friedberg. We'd like to start this week with a clip of Ken Cuccinelli. He's acting director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Agency. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. Cuccinelli offered that revision of Emma Lazarus's poem on a Statue of Liberty during an interview with NPR last year. It, you know, it pretty much sums up the Trump administration's policy on which immigrants should be allowed into America. A little over a year ago, the Trump administration proposed a change in rules that would deny permanent residency status, known as a green card, to anyone who will likely rely on federal assistance, including Medicaid, food stamps, and housing assistance like Section 8. And this week, the Supreme Court said President Trump has the authority to enact these rules. This week, Lewis is in Washington, D.C. at a board meeting of the Migration Policy Institute, and he had an opportunity to interview Randy Capps, the Institute's Director of Research for U.S. Programs. Welcome, Randy. Thank you, Lewis. It's great to be on your show. So for people who haven't been following it, what is this public charge issue? What actually is the issue here? It's a longstanding provision of U.S. law that says that somebody who's likely to become a public charge, meaning a burden on the government, should not be able to get a green card. This rule has new enhanced ways of measuring that. If someone has used a major means-tested federal program, such as welfare, disability, food stamps, Medicaid, or housing for a year within the past three years, that would make them inadmissible. Or if they have characteristics likely to make them use those benefits in the future, such as being older, poorer, less educated, not an English speaker, that could also work against them in getting a green card. And the Trump administration wanted to and now is able to add additional benefits that if somebody used it, it was applying for a green card, that could count against them getting a green card. So the old rule that's been in effect since 1999 was limited to primary dependence on cash welfare or disability. And basically very few people would fall into that category. Food stamps, Medicaid, much bigger programs, much more broadly used. Now that said, the number of people who don't have a green card yet who are using these programs is very small because of restrictions in U.S. law that say you basically have to have a green card to use these programs. So what then is the major effect? We've reported this at EdSource that there's a fear factor that people who actually would not be affected by this rule but think they might be have just stopped using the benefits. So in 1996, Congress passed welfare reform, which basically cut people who weren't green card holders and even some people who had green cards off of these programs, said they were no longer eligible. And that led to a decline in the number of immigrants using these benefits. But researchers found that even among people who were still eligible for the benefits, those green card holders and the refugees and asylum seekers who were never affected by this welfare reform stuff, even they were declining in using benefits by as much as a quarter to half. So what do we know about what's happened around this proposal? Well, this rule's been discussed since Trump took office almost three years ago, and it's been a constant fear that people have been documenting. There really aren't any hard numbers yet that can prove food stamps, Medicaid went down by so much because of this. But last year around this time, the Urban Institute did a nationwide survey that showed that one in seven immigrant families was not using benefits because they were afraid of the public charge rule. And that included one in five low-income immigrant families, which is a pretty high share of people that were worried about this rule. 
Until now, the rule actually hadn't been in effect. And so maybe people's fears were not that well founded, but now it's going into effect. Do you think this is going to increase fears, even for those people who this does not apply to, and that we will see fewer people using benefits? I think it's likely that with the increased media coverage of it again, there may be some more fear and confusion spread in the communities about it. But the reality is that very few people who don't have a green card yet are actually eligible to use cash welfare, disability, food stamps, Medicaid, or public housing. That number of people who would be disqualified because they've used these benefits when applying for a green card is actually really small. The worry is that there are going to be a lot of people who already have a green card who don't understand the rule, who in the context of everything else going on in this administration with ramped up deportations, with threats of changes to immigration law, that they're also going to be worried about it, even though they don't have to be because of this particular rule. And of course, in California, given that we have huge numbers of immigrants and immigrant kids or kids whose parents are not U.S. citizens, that this would have a disproportionate impact in California. A quarter of all immigrants, about 10 million out of a little over 40 million, live in California. So, I mean, of course, it's going to have a disproportionate impact there. It's also a very diverse state with people from a lot of different immigrant backgrounds, which makes it more complex to put messages out, for instance, in multiple languages to tell people that if you've got a green card, it's okay. This rule's not going to affect you. And then the other thing is that California is one of the most generous states when it comes to the level of benefits that are available and the eligibility rules. So there actually probably are some small groups of people like those that are getting only state-funded cash welfare that don't have a green card yet. There will be small, small populations that could be affected by this that are a little bit bigger in California than they are in other states around the country. I got a notice from the superintendent of my kid's school district saying we've heard that parents are afraid to have their kids participate in the school lunch program in case this would be used against them if applying for a green card and saying, no, no, the school lunch program is not part of the new restrictions. Is that correct? Two things. First of all, education benefits generally are not included. That means Head Start, that means adult education, anything that's basically an education benefit. Among the nutrition benefits, food stamps is included, but not free and reduced price lunches, school lunches, not women, infant, children, nutrition, supplemental stuff. The second point is that this rule only applies to people who are applying for green cards themselves. If they have a child in their family, that child's benefit use of anything does not count against them when they're applying. The public charge rule only applies to that individual who's actually applying to get a green card. Well, uh, so this is actually pretty complicated <laughs> to kind of sift through what benefits are affected, who is affected. So what advice would you have for both parents and people who are working with parents in terms of helping people sift through this and to make sure that kids don't lose benefits that they are actually eligible for. Yeah, I mean, first of all, this rule is being implemented now, but benefits use in the past won't count against anyone. It's not retroactive. Secondly, it is limited to those listed benefits. We could look at the rule or, or stuff about the rule that's been published, but again, primarily it's cash welfare disability, Medicaid, food stamps, and housing. It is not other benefits like school lunches. And third, it's not about whether or not someone else in the family uses benefits. It's about whether the individual who's applying has used the benefits. 
We've been talking with Randy Capps. He's Director of Research for U.S. Programs at the Migration Policy Institute. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much. Zadie, you've covered the potential impact of the public charge rule in California on immigrants here. What have you heard about the chilling effect that Randy Capps described? I have been covering this for a little over a year, John, and I have heard from clinics, school counselors, school-based health centers, principals, and people all across the spectrum that they are hearing from people that they want to disenroll their children from programs that the children are still eligible for and programs that are not on the list Many advocates think that one of the goals of this policy change is actually to create more fear. And the administration actually recognized that there would be a chilling effect. It did not make an estimate of how many people. But as Caps discussed, there is some evidence from the past that up to a quarter of people might disenroll. It just sort of adds to the overall atmosphere, I guess, for people who are immigrants who are maybe anticipating or would like to apply for permanent residency or citizenship down the line, and that it's going to be really hard, and that must be really disheartening. Well, school superintendents and county superintendents are very concerned about this. We saw this week, as Lewis talked about, we saw superintendents sending out letters to parents. San Francisco Unified, LA Unified, Oakland Unified, and several county offices of education and probably other school districts that I don't know of yet have sent out statements to their parents basically rejecting this rule and and trying to reassure families that their kids can still eat free and reduced price school lunch, but also in some cases reassuring people that they can send their children to school, which of course, as we know, is is something that the Supreme Court already decided is 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 a right for everyone. Well Zadie, Emma Lazarus said, bring us your tired and you're poor and you're hungry. America has always been a place where People could come regardless of how wealthy they are and make something of themselves, and that's the American way. And this is changing that. What's the message? Who's this aimed at? I think that this policy and a lot of other policies coming out of the Trump administration, for example, slashing the number of people who can become refugees, making it almost impossible to apply for asylum if you come from Central America, for example, without going through another country. I think all of those policies, including this one, are aimed at immigrants from certain parts of the world and particularly immigrants of color. The Los Angeles County Superintendent of Schools, Dr. Deborah Duardo, said, I am truly disheartened by the U.S. Supreme Court decision. And then she went on to say that nearly 60 percent of children in Los Angeles County have at least one immigrant parent. And Eduardo said, I am deeply concerned that these families may fear accessing nutrition, medical and housing assistance programs. The policy will make Los Angeles County children hungrier, less healthy and more likely to become homeless. The harm caused will not be borne by immigrants seeking a change in status alone but will reverberate throughout communities and destabilize school districts, harming children and creating an atmosphere of anxiety that makes it more difficult for fearful students to focus on their studies. And that's what I've been hearing from school district officials across the state, basically. Well, you know, L.A. has more immigrants than anywhere else in California. And to understand how the county is dealing with the challenges and stresses facing immigrants and their children, Lewis interviewed Arturo Valdez. He's deputy superintendent of the Los Angeles County Office of Education. Lewis, they asked him if there are specific needs of immigrant children that that we should be aware of. 
We're actually talking about uh, trauma that these kids are bringing that are really affecting their ability to come to school on a daily basis. We're talking about trauma that doesn't allow them to really focus in on the purpose and the value of education. Their trauma is more on a day-to-day survival type mode. With the climate that we have here nationally, it's obviously adding additional trauma to our students. And so what our schools are trying to do is provide some of that social-emotional learning support so that all kids, including our immigrant students, are better prepared to receive education and have better results. Let me ask you about the threat of deportation, not only for the students, because many of them are U.S.-born citizens, but family members. I know when the Trump administration started or accelerated that whole deportation policy, there was quite a lot of attention placed on this, but now we've kind of moved on to other things not as much attention. Is that a concern? I mean, to what extent do you see children being affected by that? It is absolutely positively a major concern. Uh, It is as much today as it was two or three years ago. The reason I say that is because we are witnessing families that are not taking advantage of some of the services that they might be able to because of fear of deportation. I know that when this initially came out, even our Head Start program, they were concerns about if you attended a Federal Head Start program, would it be held against you if you were here as an immigrant and that possibly if you were seeking citizenship down the road that it would be used against you? So our families and our students are are well alarmed. It's also the community. You know, even if you're not an immigrant and you have a friend who's an immigrant, you worry for that friend. You worry because that friend tries to talk to you about the issues and concerns. So it's really ripples down into other students and teachers and communities and parents of course. So what can be done about that? Is the county involved in that in terms of sort of advising districts? You obviously don't have the resources to go and work in all these districts. Yes, the county is very much involved in partnering with our major county departments, Department of Mental Health, Department of Social Services, Health Services, even the legal and, and immigration advocacy groups that are out there. LA County is trying to connect these services to our school sites. When we meet with the 80 districts, superintendents, They say we need more help in these areas. And so our goal as the county is to help connect services to our districts, help connect community-based organizations to our districts so that ultimately it trickles down to support for parents at the school site level where they feel most safe. We're talking with Arturo Valdez. He is the deputy superintendent in Los Angeles County Office of Education. And I think we need to state the obvious here that L.A. County, this is not a small minority group. I mean, immigrants comprise the largest share of the student population. That That is 100% correct. Uh, we also would require the largest amount of resources to help deal with some of these issues. I always think that the way L.A. County goes, California goes, and the way California goes, the nation goes. And so we need to put more of an effort to advocate at the state level and the federal level to really bring the appropriate services down. And I think with Gavin Newsom there, he's made some really good choices about homeless students, about early education, about special education. We're hoping to partner with them to really see those results and services for all families in L.A. County. Just to clarify, I mean, I think even though the majority of families and students are from immigrant backgrounds, most of them are not from undocumented backgrounds. 
I think that sometimes gets confused in the national debates, at least. That, that's 100% correct. I mean, my parents came over as undocumented. They became citizens. We do even have immigrant students that have been here for more than 10 years. I mean, they, this is, to, to many of them, the only country they've ever known, and they're in high school. And so to them, this is their country, and we need to make sure that we, we identify what their needs are and where they're at, because I think the supports they need will really determine how far they're able to achieve. We talk about economic development and making them part of the workforce so that they're earning higher than a minimum wage and able to be productive citizens that are really engaged uh, civically in the process of what we provide. One would expect that L.A. County would have made more progress than most counties anywhere in the United States. At the same time, there's a resource issue. So how far along would you say L.A. County is in being able to effectively serve its immigrant students and you know how much of a need is still out there I think we've made some great progress in partnerships uh, with families and districts and communities and even the county departments, but I think it's not sufficient. What we do if we're successful, other counties in California and the nation will benefit from that. Well, on that note, thank you, Arturo Valdez, Deputy Superintendent in the L.A. County Office of Education. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We'll continue to cover the immigration policies and how they affect California's children. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from the Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and EdSource's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm John Fensterwald. And I'm Zadie Stavely. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.